Dear Lord, now as we just uh, reassemble and focus our attention on your word, we pray again for the presence of the Holy Spirit and to help your words come to life. Pray the things that we learn and the principles that we'll be able to apply them to our lives and see fruit. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Here Jesus makes a very important statement that's worthy of our attention, where he tells the people there's no sign that's going to be given to them except one particular sign. Matthew 12, verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the, prophet, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus makes this statement, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. What is Jesus talking about? What is the sign of Jonah? Now, Jonah is one of the most interesting prophets and prophecies in the Bible because uh, it's, a, it's an incredible story. Some people struggle to believe uh, if it even is a true story about this wayward prophet who gets swallowed by a great nondescript fish, somehow manages to survive, not just for a few minutes, but for three days and three nights, gets regurgitated and then goes on to have the greatest evangelistic meeting in biblical history. Um, you can understand why some skeptics and even some professed Christians say a story of Jonah is just impossible. It's got to be an allegory. And um, I remember reading one time about a, a lady that was riding on a public bus, and she took the bus every day because she would go babysit for her daughter while she worked. And just about every day, she would take her Bible with her, and she'd read the Bible as she took the bus. Well, there's another businessman. He was a lawyer and atheist, and he would take the bus, and he'd often get up and give her his seat, and they became acquainted. And uh, one day, he couldn't contain himself. He said, he said Grandma, I see that uh, every day you're reading your Bible. She said, yes, sir, it's the word of God. He said, well, do you believe all of it's true? She said, absolutely, I do. And he said, uh, you mean literally the stories you think are true? God's word says it. I believe it. That's, the Bible says thy word is truth. He said, so you believe that uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they talked to a snake? She said, I believe it. And he said, and you believe that Noah built a big boat and two of each animal came on the boat? And she said, God's word says it. Absolutely, I believe it. He said, now don't tell me that you believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and came out three days later. She said, I believe it. It's in the Word of God. He said, how can a man survive inside a fish for three days and three nights? She said, I'm not sure. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. He said, well, what if he's not in heaven? She said, then of course you can ask him. <laughs> so, one reason I believe that the story of Jonah is true is because Jesus said it's true. 
Now, Jonah was a real person. Uh, He's also mentioned not only in the book of Jonah, but have you noticed there's a prophecy that's given by Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. And um, he lived about 790 to 750 B.C. He lived and worked during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And so Jonah is in the Bible as a real character who had a real ministry, and we have a time when he lived. And uh, his book, of course, is a record of an amazing account. But all the Jewish scholars and rabbis believed that the story of Jonah was true. Um, The experience of Jonah is often seen. Now, these stories in the Bible are true, but they're often then an allegory for other things. In other words, the story of Joseph is true. But the story of Joseph is an allegory of Jesus. We talked about that yesterday being sold by your brothers, forgiving your brothers, uh, continuing to give the whole world this bread of life when there's a famine. and So Joseph is an allegory, like David is an allegory of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. Jonah is often thought of as an allegory for God's people. And what he went through is, um, is really a lesson of the Jewish nation, how he ended up going to uh, he, he was called to bear the light to the Gentiles. He didn't want to do it. And God found a way to do it anyway, through captivity. And so it was after his captivity in the whale, he ended up doing the greatest good. And so they've often seen Jonah as an allegory of their own nation. So go to the book of Jonah. We're going to look at it. I'll spend most of my time in the first few verses. Um, but we will, God willing, get through the whole book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word Jonah means dove. The son of Amittai, dove, dove, yeah, like a peace. Uh, The son of Amittai, and it said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom. Um, The Syrians, their capital city was Damascus. Sometimes we get Assyria and Syria mixed up, and it's easy to understand. But uh, Damascus is a lot closer. It's just north of Israel, whereas Nineveh was a lot further east and north, uh, closer to the um, Mesopotamian Valley. And uh, Jonah did not want to go. Now, you could understand if God asked a Jew today to walk into the Palestinian Gaza Strip and pronounce that the Palestinians were wicked and God is going to judge them. That would not be very well received. Um, And for Jonah to go to the capital city of one of the avowed enemies of Israel and announce that they were going to be judged for their wickedness sounded like a suicide mission. So you could see why he'd be reluctant to go. But, you know, God never tells you to do anything without promising that he'll sustain you. And even if you would lose your life, you always need to do what God says, especially if you're a prophet. But something happened to Jonah. It says, he arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them from the presence of the Lord. Now, how does it usually work if uh, somebody thinks they can flee from the presence of the Lord? 
If you've got your Bible, you might want to turn to Psalm 139, and there's some uh, good lessons for us here. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, interesting, it even mentions the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the light, but the night as the day, both the darkness and the light are both alike to you. So even in the darkest places, you can't hide from God. And so for a prophet to run from the Lord is... Um, a serious flaw. <clears throat> so he doesn't want to go. God says, I want you to go east. He said, goes west. And when it says he went to go to Tarshish, now, if you have a map of the Mediterranean, Tarshish was the furthest most seaport that the Phoenicians would go to when you went through the gates of Hercules, you know, where North Africa and Spain kind of pinch off the Mediterranean. There was a, in Spain, there was a seaport there. They're not exactly sure where it was, but uh, they think they may have rediscovered it. There was a lot of silver smelting that went there. It talks about the ships of Tarshish in the, uh, the writings of uh, the kings, and they would go. But it was the end of the earth. Some of you, you know the marine anthem. Uh, it says, to the shores of Tripoli. Well, the furthest base you could go as a Marine was Tripoli. Have you ever heard uh, someone say he went all the way to Timbuktu? Uh, one of the most remote places that you could be assigned later was Timbuktu, which is in you know, North Africa. Um, and so when it says he went to Tarshish, that's as far as you could go because they didn't know you could sail off into America after you went through the gates of Hercules. And, and so... Uh, he went as far in the other direction. It was like the prodigal son going into a far country to get away from his father. It just, his conscience was bothering him, and he thought, well, maybe if I just go on a cruise, that everything will be okay. God's word said, the word of the Lord said, arise, but he disobeyed, and it says he went down. Did you notice that? God's word elevates, but Jonah went the other direction, and he went down. Now, uh, he may have told himself, well, look, you know, I'm not so sure this is a good idea to run from God, but um, tell you what, he's talking to himself, and I'm just making this up, but people do this. Uh, you know, I, I really don't want to, I'm willing to be a prophet, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to do a lot of things, and I'll witness to the other sailors on the boat, but I tell you what, just give me a sign that it's okay for me not to go to Tarshish, or not to go to Nineveh. So if I get down to Joppa and there are some boats ready to sail, I'll take that as a sign that everything's okay. So he gets there and sure enough, there's boats ready to sail. And then he says, all right, well, but um, Lord, if there's a boat going to Tarshish and they've got room for one more passenger, I'll take that as a sign. It's okay for me not to do what you want me to do. Sure enough, there is a boat going to Tarshish and they got room. Uh, oh, well, you know, I still don't have peace. Lord, if I've got enough money in my pocket to pay the fare then I'll know it's okay for me not to go to talk to the Ninevites. He reaches in his pocket and he's got just enough money to pay the fare. And he pays the fare and he says, well, Lord, if the weather's good for sailing, then I'll know it's okay. 
Oh, the weather's good for sailing. So he talks himself into thinking somehow it's okay to disobey God. Now you think, how does a prophet get to the place where he thinks it's okay to go the opposite direction God tells him to go? God's word doesn't change. I'll tell you. I have had uh, couples come to me, and they're not married to each other. And it's a businessman and a secretary. And they go to church. And they say, we're leaving our spouses because we're just incompatible. And they'll tell how terrible it is to be married to their spouses. But they say, we both love the Lord. And we just think that God is blessing us. He is opening the way. And we just see his hand leading. We have such peace. You ever heard that before? It is amazing to me how people can talk themselves into believing that abject disobedience is somehow okay in their case. That God is somehow going to wink at their disobedience. And they misunderstand God's patience as permission. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Now, that's a translation for what Solomon said there is, because God doesn't zap you with lightning as soon as you disobey, we misinterpret his patience as, oh, well, I guess it's okay. But God's word, he means what he says. And when God commands something, there are going to be repercussions if we disobey. Though he bears long with us, because he's patient. But Jonah talked himself into thinking, well, well, you know, hey, after all, nice day, found a boat going the right direction. I've got the money. God's saying, okay, I'll let you all find someone else. So he gets on the boat. By the way, if you're going to run from God, you've got to pay the fare. It did cost him something to run from God. And he did not get a refund. You'll never see in the Bible that he got a refund, even though he did not get to his destination. So he gets on the boat. He goes down, down, down. And he goes into the lowest parts of the ship to go to sleep. You read in verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. You know what's in the lowest part of the ship? They call it the bilge water. If you've ever been on a boat, it's just the, it stinks and, and the rats are down there. And he's just, and when you run from God, you end up down there with the bilge. But um, somehow he manages to go to sleep. Here you've got this runaway prophet and he's sleeping like a baby. But the Lord, go to verse 4 again, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship was about to be broken up. And the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah, the Jewish prophet, he is sleeping while the pagan sailors are praying. It's interesting. Often it seems that the church has no idea what a treasure we've got in a message of salvation. Jonah is supposed to give a message of life. And he is sleeping through his commission while the people perishing around him are praying. Jonah is sleeping. He doesn't realize the ship is about to go down with him in it. And he's asleep. 
You know, uh, sometimes we can sleep on our way to destruction. It makes me think about Acts chapter 12, where Peter is going to be executed the next day, and he's sleeping. The devil will try to anesthetize us and put us to sleep so that we don't realize our duty. They're praying. They're making sacrifices. They're throwing everything overboard. They're ready to sacrifice everything that they might live. And Jonah is taking a cruise to run from the presence of the Lord. Just such a big contrast in this story. It's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. And finally, the captain, he goes down below deck, and he's looking around for something else they can throw overboard to lighten the ship. And he shines his lamp back near the stern in the lowest parts of the ship, and they're slogging around in the back, laying on a pile of, of gear. He hears snoring. And he's shocked that as the boat is diving and rolling and pitching and plunging into the trough of the next wave and the waves are going over the top, water seeping in through the cracks, he hears, <laughs> sleeping the sleep of the lost is the prophet. And he asks him a question. What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Now here it uses the word God, which is, capital G, which means he's talking about the God of the Jews, Jehovah, where before you notice it says the sailors were calling out to their gods, which is small g. He says, arise and call on your God. Perhaps he will consider us that we may not perish. Just a few moments ago, Pastor Ross on his screen, he showed you a picture of Jesus asleep in a boat during a storm. Jesus said, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus was asleep in the lowest part of a ship in a storm? He was in the stern, the Bible says. And they woke him up and they said, Master, do you care not that we're perishing? Here in the story of Jonah, the master of the ship wakes up Jonah and he says, do you not care that we are perishing? In the story of Jesus, the servants wake up the master. In the story of Jonah, the master wakes up the servant. And so... Jonah wakes up and he's wondering, what in the world is going on? That's really a dumb question to ask Jesus. Master, do you care that we're perishing? What does John 3.16 say? He sold of the world, he gave his son that we might not perish. And uh, he comes up on deck and he sees the, the, the sailors. Now they've thrown everything overboard they can throw over. And they think there's one thing left to throw. And uh, the boat is rocking and, and rolling and dipping and pitching and rising and water is coming in. And they said, this is a supernatural storm. I'm in verse 7. Let's cast lots that we might know for whose cause this trouble has kind of come upon us. Casting lots. Where are they casting lots around the cross? Yeah. Let us cast lots. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah doesn't look at all surprised. He knew at this point. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause this trouble is on us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what are your people? He said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, Why have you done this? 
for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. And then they said, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm to us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Do you see things improving? It's getting worse and worse. Why? It wasn't going to get better until Jonah made a U-turn. Someone said repentance is a U-turn on the road of life, and that means U-turn. You've got to change directions. As long as he's going the wrong direction, it's not going to get better. Notice something else that's happening. While the prophet of God is running from the will of God, the people around him are perishing. He knew the truth. He knew the true God, but he wasn't surrendered to God. You know, your decision to follow the Lord or to not follow the Lord will not only affect you, it will affect those around you. Sometimes I'll hear about a father, and he tells the wife and kids, yeah, you better go ahead and take the kids to Sabbath school and church. It'd be good for them. Take them to VBS, but I'm going to stay home. And he thinks, well, as long as they're saved, I don't care. I, you know, I just want to drink my beer and read the sports section. And he thinks that it doesn't matter what he's doing. But, you know, most of the time, uh, the kids are going to end up valuing what the father values. And if it's not a priority for the parents, it's not going to be a priority for the kids. If you're in heaven, you will likely see people in heaven around you who are there because of your influence. If you're in the lake of fire, you'll look to your right and your left and you'll see people who are there because of your influence. No man is an island. All of us will have an influence for people to be saved or for, for people to be lost. If we surrender our lives and we turn to the Lord, people are going to be changed because of that decision. Look at how many people around Jonah are perishing now because he's running from God. And so they ask him seven questions. I don't know if you caught that. <clears throat> and uh, for whose cause is this trouble? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What are your people? He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm the, I worship the God that made the sea and the dry land. When he mentions sea, they keyed in on that. They were having problems with the sea right then. And they said, what shall we do to you? No, and they said, why did you do this? He has no answer for that. What shall we do to you? Last question. That the sea may be calm for us, for it was growing more tempestuous. What was the only answer? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know this great tempest is because of me. Why is there a great tempest in this world? It's called the great controversy between Christ and Satan. It's because the devil hates Jesus. It all revolved around Jonah. And um, <clears throat> I told you he's something of a type of the Jewish nation. There's no people in the world that have had a bigger impact on history than the Jewish nation. You and I right now have spread before us a book that is largely written by Jews. God committed the oracles of truth to them. The woman at the well said, well, you know, our people say we should worship on Mount Gerizim, and your people say that we should worship on Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. And Jesus said, he just interrupted, he said, salvation is of the Jews. Amen. In other words, the Lord picked this nation. They are the vehicle, not that they're better than anyone else. He said, you're stubborn and stiff-necked people. He said that they were to be the vehicle that would be the guardians for the oracles of truth to deliver salvation to the world. Jonah was like a type of that nation. And um, 
He's also, as I said, he's a type of Christ. He said, the only way you're going to have peace is you need to sacrifice me. I thought, well, if Jonah really felt that, why, why didn't he just dive overboard? Why did he say to them, you must offer me? You must take responsibility for my death. You must, with your own hands, pick me up and throw me overboard. You know, we are all responsible for the death of Jesus. And it's not until we realize that he didn't just die for the sins of the world, he died for our sins. And he wasn't just crucified back there by some evil religious leaders and Roman slaves, that we held the nails, we held the hammer, that we are responsible. We are called an accessory to the crime. <laughs> We're accomplices in his execution because he died for our sins, right? And you know, we often think he died for the sins of the world. It means much more when you realize he died for my sins. And Ellen White adds that if nobody else in the world had ever sinned, he still would have died just for your sins. So when you make it personal like that, well, they didn't want to throw him overboard. They thought there's got to be another way we can save ourselves. Is there any other way we can save ourselves? And uh, nonetheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more tempestuous. Do we read another story in the Bible? There's two stories of Jesus on the sea. One, he's asleep in a boat. The other one, he's not in the boat. The disciples are rowing hard to save themselves, but the wind is against them. They can't get to shore, try though they may, until they accept Jesus into the boat. It's kind of interesting. They rowed to save themselves, but they couldn't because the sea got worse and worse. And every wave, it seemed like the boat was going deeper and the waves were getting higher and more of the wave was rolling over the ship. And uh, I've actually been in the Mediterranean, in a boat, in a storm. And uh, it's very real to me. And I read about that storm where Paul shipwrecked on Malta. And I've been on the island of Malta. And I landed on a boat. And uh, you wouldn't think so, because when you look at a map, the Mediterranean is only that big. I mean, compared to the Pacific, which is like that big. <laughs> and so does you think, how big can the storms get? It's just a little, it's a big lake. And uh, I'll tell you, you go days without seeing land when you're in a sailboat, and the waves get really big. And I remember being in a storm where we'd go down one wave, and the other wave would be so close and so high, the nose of the ship would plow right on through the wave, and part of the wave would roll from bow to stern over the deck, just taking things overboard with it. And the captain told us, it was winter at this point, the water was cold, the captain told us, he said, look, if you get washed overboard, he said, we're going to mark the spot and tell your parents because we cannot turn the boat around in this storm. And he said, it's too dark and we would have to go sideways in the waves. And if you, a boat in a storm like that, if you're sideways in the waves, you can capsize. And he said, you better not, you better hang on for dear life. Don't get, you know, we hear man overboard. We're not turning around. <laughs> so uh, this is serious and the waves are getting worse and worse. And they hear the boat groaning and creaking like it's going to just explode into smithereens and they can't save themselves. And finally, it said, uh, they, the storm got worse. Finally, they cried out, verse 14. They said, Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. That's John 3.16. Do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Isn't it interesting that these pagans, they don't want to offer him. They respect human life. 
often more than other people do. They're trying not to take an innocent life. Finally, they realize, hey, what have we got to lose? We're about to go down any minute. We may as well try this. And so they take Jonah by his hands and his legs, and they go one, two, and the third swing, they hurl him over the side of the boat. They said, we don't want to perish for innocent blood. What did Pilate say when he washed his hands at the cross of Jesus? I don't want to be guilty of this man's innocent blood. So they throw Jonah into the sea, and it's interesting that the sea ceased its raging. The way that's worded, ceased, it was like abrupt. It's like when Jesus said, peace be still, and the waves flattened out, the water became glassy, the wind stopped blowing, the clouds parted, the moon shone through. It was like a sudden miraculous transformation in nature. So the Bible says that the disciples were more afraid after Jesus calmed the storm than they were of the storm. They were exceedingly afraid then, and they said, who and what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So when they threw Jonah overboard, and he said, I worship the God that made the sea, they went through a conversion. When Jonah finally surrendered and said, look, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. It's my fault. Throw me into the sea. They then offered a sacrifice. They made vows to, notice what? The Lord. They're now worshiping Jehovah after Jonah surrendered. It's amazing how quickly God will turn people around when we turn around. What's that? Yeah, God, God still used him. He wasn't done yet either. You know, some people think, oh, what can the Lord do with my life? I don't have much life left. Uh, but sometimes in just the last hours of a person's life, their conversion can be the means of converting others. And, you know, the Bible says where there's life, there's hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. And so just give the Lord whatever you have. And it says, now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I need to talk about that for just a moment because people get confused and they make a big fuss and folks even split and quit the church because they misunderstand this one verse. Now, Jesus does talk about the sign of Jonah in two or three places, but he only mentions the three days and three nights in Matthew 12. And if you've done the math before, you say, all right, as Jonah was in the tomb, or in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the tomb three days and three nights. They say Jesus went into the tomb Friday afternoon. So you got Friday night, Saturday night, he rises Sunday morning. No matter how you cut it, it's only two nights. And I've heard people try to move the crucifixion day to Wednesday. Have you run into that? And they say it wasn't really the regular Passover, and, and it wasn't the Sabbath when Jesus went to the tomb. And I've just heard all kinds of convoluted efforts. And when I ask them, why are you doing this? They go to this Matthew 12 verse, and they're trying to make it fit. They don't need to do any of that. There was a time in Adventist history where we read a verse in Daniel 8, 14, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, I said Adventist history, I didn't say Seventh-day Adventist history, because there were no Seventh-day Adventists back then. So if you ever hear people say Adventist, Seventh-day Adventists set a date for Jesus' coming, correct them, please. That happened in 1844. Our church wasn't formed until 1863. It was the Advent movement, not to be confused with Seventh-day Adventists. Some Seventh-day Adventists experienced that movement, 
but they went all different directions. Jehovah Witnesses went through that too. A lot of people went through that movement. So just make sure that you make that clear. But their problem was, they looked at Daniel 8, 14. They said, the sanctuary will be cleansed. And that's Jesus coming to cleanse the earth, the sanctuary with fire. And they built this whole movement on one misunderstanding. Where in the Bible did it say the earth is the sanctuary? Nowhere. And just look how misunderstanding one verse a little bit can change history. Where in the Bible does it call the tomb the heart of the earth? When you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Does that mean the tomb? No. So what is the heart of the earth that Jesus is talking about? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. You look at the original there, the word heart is cardia. You know what that means. It's Greek. It means like cardiac arrest, cardia, your heart. It means the midst. And the world there is the tierra. It's talking about the world as in God so loves the world. The devil is called the prince of this world. Right? It's simply saying that when Jesus was surrendered in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, now is the hour. Have you noticed every other time in Christ's life when people came to arrest him or stone him or throw him off a cliff, he was protected by the Father. He passed through their midst. They can never do anything to him. But after the Lord's Supper, Thursday night, Thursday night after he prayed three times and he perspired blood, um, you know, even when Jesus crossed from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane, he had to cross the Kidron Valley, and it was Passover. Blood was running through the valley from the temple right then. So Jesus, he gave them the covenant of blood. He crossed the blood, and then he perspired blood. And then he comes to the disciples after he prays the third time, not my will, thy will. And he said, sleep on, now is the hour. Matter of fact, three times in that record, he says, now is the hour. Every other time, he said, this is not the hour. His mother said, turn the water to wine. He said, my hour is not yet come. So the hour of his suffering for the sins of the world began Thursday night. What is the penalty for sin? Is it just death? Or is there suffering in death? Penalty, we always say the wages for sin is death. That's the ultimate wages, but there's more to it than that. Will the wicked just die when Jesus comes? Are they all rewarded according to what they deserve? And everyone is punished. He that has done many things wrong, many stripes. He has done few things wrong, few stripes, Jesus said. Right? So there's varying degrees of punishment, maybe varying duration of punishment. Jesus not only died for our sins, he suffered and died for our sins. When did his suffering begin? Thursday night. They started to beat him. They mocked him. He was tried. He was the, the Lord withdrew his presence and protection from Jesus Thursday night. Jesus was then carried about by that mob that was demon-inspired as Jonah was carried about by the whale. Jesus was surrounded by darkness as Jonah was surrounded by darkness in the whale. Can you imagine what it would be like to be inside a whale? It occurred to me one day that if Jonah could somehow survive in the whale, that whale may have had a very slow metabolism. That whale could have had other things on the menu that day. And he could have been eating jellyfish and and that were stinging Jonah and others, eels, and who knows what else was in that sushi mix with Jonah. 
Can you imagine that? You're in there, you know, you're squunched up in the digestive system of this whale and, and, or a large fish. Now, many whales cannot eat a person. Like a blue whale, they're baleen whales. They can't eat a person. But a humpback, uh, oh no, not a humpback, a sperm whale can eat people. They eat giant squid. Matter of fact, I've got one story you can read. You, you can type in James Bartley. He is, uh, they called him the modern Jonah. He was on a whaling ship um, called the Something Star off the Falkland Islands. And um, uh, their boat, their gun, their whale boat that they were on the water chasing a whale, they harpooned a whale and it went down, it came back up and it smashed their boat to smithereens. And um, two of the sailors disappeared. The others were recovered by the other whaling boat. The whale eventually died from his wounds. They pulled it ashore and they started carving it open. They quit after dark. The next day they resumed their work. They finally got down to the digestive system and they saw something moving in the stomach. Normally they would just throw all that off to the sharks. But they saw something moving and they opened it up and there was James Bartley inside. And they pulled him out, he was unconscious. They brought him to the captain's quarters, they washed him off, they brought him to the captain's quarters, and after a day or so, he revived. And he told about, you know, they were chasing the whale, and he remembered getting hit, and he flew off into the water. And he said it wasn't long before he felt himself captured and enveloped in this long, slimy tube that kept pushing him down into a chamber, and it was hot and miserable. He was choking and on the water and things, and, and he said he found a pocket of air. And he said he breathed as long as he could, and he said he passed out, and that's the last thing he remembered. And so, um, uh, and that's one, I've heard of some other accounts of people who've been swallowed by fish and somehow survived. It's, of course, not very common, but it doesn't even bother me if you can't find that in modern history, because it says, the Lord prepared a fish. It says the Lord prepared a storm. It was a supernatural storm, and if God wanted to, he can make a supernatural fish. Before the story's over, God makes a supernatural gourd, and he makes a supernatural worm, which tells us that God is in charge of everything in nature, right? So Jonah gets out of the fish. He prays. Isn't it encouraging that uh, how far from God can you be? Can you be any further from God to be in the digestive system of a sea monster at the bottom of the mountains? You tell me where that place would be. Unless you're, you know, modern times you'd say it's space station or something. But Jonah is in the darkest place a person can be because it's a type of the sufferings of Jesus. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, bearing the penalty for the sins of the world. He was in the heart of the earth, meaning in the clutches of the devil. Three days and three nights, right? That's what it's talking about. And then... Um, he prays from there, he prays an incredible prayer. He prays to the temple of God. Could God still hear that? When my soul fainted within me, I'm in chapter 2 now, verse 7, I remember the Lord and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and the, and the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. How kind of the Lord. 
you know, God is so merciful. He could have had the fish burp him out in the middle of the ocean and say, you swim the rest of the way. But God said, okay, I'm going to give you a fish escort right to land. The fish gets his lower jaw right up on the shore and burps Jonah out. Jonah comes slithering out with the other occupants. And um, now God says, all right, Jonah, you've had a rough time. I hope you've learned your lesson. I'm going to let you off the hook. Don't ever disobey me again. But I'm not going to make you go to Nineveh. Don't worry about it. I'm going to change my word for you. Is that what he says? So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, and it says the exact same thing it said the first time. God's word does not change. Heaven and earth will pass away. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message I give you. Does Jonah go now? You better believe it. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now notice this. Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days journey in extent. Now the scholars have grappled over what that means because from the closest point of the Mediterranean to Nineveh, it's like, you know, 300 miles. And you could make it in three days, but you would have to go all out like a Pony Express rider. And then it says, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Some versions say the first day, and that means the, the daylight hours. So notice what's happening. It's very, very important. All you've got to know is it says three days and half a day. And what does he say? He began to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, is everyone awake? I want, I want to have your attention. Do not miss what the most important point is. Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation. What is a generation? 40 years biblically. How do we know that? What did God tell the children of Israel that did not have faith? This generation will not enter. How long did they wander? 40 years. And you look at the life of many of the kings. David reigned 40 years. Saul reigned 40 years. Solomon reigned 40 years. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years going from Egypt to the wilderness, through the wilderness, uh, I'm sorry, 40 years, uh, uh, I got mixed up here. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years leading him from Egypt to the borders of the Promised Land. You got three sets of generations of 40. Jesus, how long did he preach? From his baptism to his crucifixion. He was baptized at 30, and he died at 33 and a half. He preached three, three and a half years. He died in the spring during the Passover. Um, probably we know when he was born then, to subtract three and a half years from when he died. And was he born Christmas? He died probably in the fall. Or he was born rather probably in the fall. So Jesus said, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. Jesus preached three and a half years and he told them there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he talked about a generation. Right? This generation will not pass away. When you see the fig leaf bring forth figs, no, this generation will not pass away till all these things come to pass. Exactly 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed because the people did not repent. And Jesus said the people of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, I haven't even gotten to that yet. Jonah starts to march up and down the city streets. And he said... Uh, 39 days and Nineveh will perish because of your sins. And they looked at him and I mean, you know, who knows, he may have had bleached and blotched skin. He probably looked like he'd been through a fish. 
if you spend three days and three nights sleeping on a blubber mattress, you probably look different. And he came through that fish as a changed man. And uh, he didn't care if he died before, anymore. He'd been through something worse than death. He was going to do whatever God told him to do. So he was a very convincing preacher because he believed it now. 40 days and never will be destroyed. 39 days, 38 days. He's marching up and down the streets. First they think he's crazy. But then they start to think, you know, we are pretty wicked. And it has happened before. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe we ought to straighten up. And the Bible says there is a great revival. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he laid aside his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth. And he caused it to proclaim throughout the kingdom, let neither man or beast or herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. That is the most severe fast in the Bible. No food or water. They only usually did that for three days. Um, who else did a, a fast, no food and water? Esther, no food or water? That's right. Three days. Christ, it doesn't, never says he didn't have water during the 40 days. But Paul, after the road to Damascus, no food or water. That's pretty, you can't go much longer than a few days without water and you die. And so um, this is, a, they not only repent, they really repent. They not only fast, they put on sackcloth. They not only put sackcloth on them, they put sackcloth on their animals. So this is the greatest reformation in the Bible. Whole city repents. Who can tell if God will turn away and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? There you have it again. What do we need to do that we do not perish? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to repent. The Bible says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel talks about put on sackcloth, repent. And so there's great emphasis in the Bible on this repentance. So what happens as a result of the repentance? God tells Jonah, you know, I don't want to just kill people. I want to save people. And he forgives the whole city. And there's a great revival. Now, it's interesting to me. Jonah is first told, I want you to go to Nineveh, but he doesn't want to go to the pagans. See, Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He typically worked with Jews. God says, I want you to go talk to Gentiles. He didn't want to go to the Gentiles. So he goes to Joppa and he runs. 800 years later, Peter is praying on the roof in Joppa. While he's praying, he has a vision of a sheep that comes down. And that vision says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. I want you to go talk to the Gentiles. So Peter obeys in Joppa and goes from Joppa to talk to Cornelius in Caesarea. Isn't that interesting? Jonah doesn't want to talk to the Gentiles, so from Joppa he goes to Tarshish to run from the presence of the Lord. So you hear you have this greatest revival. Now Jonah, in the meantime, he's very angry. <laughs> and he prays, oh, Lord, why didn't you listen while I was in my country? That's why I fled. I knew that you were a merciful God. I'd go through all this for nothing. You just let him off the hook. They were his enemies. He kind of was hoping God would destroy him. And God said, do you have a right to be angry? Oh, I'm angry. And he goes and he sits in a booth. He, makes, or he sits up on the hill and he's waiting to see the city destroyed and it doesn't happen. And the sun is beating down on him. And overnight, this gourd, you know, it's like a, a squash. They grow really quick and they got big leaves. This gourd grows and it winds up and it provides some shade for him 
winding up some sticks or something and provide some shade for him. And he's so thankful for the gourd. The next day, he says, the Lord prepares a worm. And the worm takes one bite out of the stem of a gourd. And that's all you got to do is snip at one spot and the whole thing dies. And it shrivels the next day and he's back in the heat. And now he is so sad about his gourd. You ever heard the expression, being out of your gourd? He's so sad that his gourd has died. And God said, look, you're grieving over a gourd. You're angry at a worm. He said, Nineveh has 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left. And that's typically an expression they use for children. It says, if you don't care about the people, there's 100, you know, children, sometimes you say, raise your right hand, they go, you know, they don't know. And so that was an ancient expression for children. He said, there's 120,000 children in that city, an exceeding great city, many people, and even animals. Do you not care about the animals? And the story stops that way, and much livestock, period. Now, you know something that's interesting about the story of Jonah? Everybody in the story of Jonah listens to God. The sailors listen to God, captain listens to God, the sea listens to God, the wind listens to God, the fish listens to God, he swallows when he swallows, and he burps when he's told to burp. The uh, Ninevites listen to God, the animals in Nineveh listen to God, the gourd listens to God, the worm listens to God, everything in God's creation listens to God except Jonah. And isn't it interesting that Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There is a certain rich man who's clothed in purple. This is Luke chapter, what, 16, verse 19. Feasts sumptuously every day. And there's a poor beggar named Lazarus that lays at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And they both die. The rich man, he goes to Hades. Now, Hades was a name that the pagans had for their place of punishment. The beggar, who's a symbol of the Gentiles, he goes to Abraham's bosom. Abraham was a symbol of the Jewish re uh, reward. So Jesus tells this very interesting story that is really a, it's a judgment on the Jewish nation. He said, you have the truth. You are feasting on the truth, but you don't care about the pagans that are at your gate. They are desiring the crumbs of truth, the, the bread that falls from your table. You may discover in the judgment that there'll be many of the pagans that are in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the natural kingdoms, whether they're Jews or church members, they're in outer darkness. They grew up with the truth, but they didn't care about the lost that were at their gates. Jonah's an example of that. The Jewish nation, they built walls around them, and they said, we are the frozen chosen. God, we're the chosen people. God loves us. He hates them. And uh, they didn't want the shadow of a Gentile to fall upon them. They didn't want to be unclean by associating with the Gentiles. That was never God's plan. He didn't want them to accept their ways, but he wanted them to be, he said, I want you to be a nation of kings and priests to reach the lost. But if we all cloister ourselves among ourselves, how many non-Adventist friends do you have? We need to have, now I don't mean to walk in their ways, but we need to be able to associate with the lost. So how are you going to reach them? So the message of Jonah is, you've got to care about the others. Everybody ends up being saved because they finally, Jonah rep repents and you got the greatest revival in the Bible. You want to hear an amazing story? There was a, um, a sailor in Nigeria. Uh, his name was um, 
McKean. And he was a cook on a tugboat 20 miles off the coast of Nigeria. This happened in March three years ago, I believe. A freak wave came and capsized the tugboat that had 12 people on board. They all dry, drowned except Harrison. Harrison McKean was his name. The boat sank in 100 feet of water. He was uh, sleeping in some underwear when this happened. He wakes up, the boat's getting tumbled around. He doesn't know up from down. All he knows is the water is coming in from the deck. He swims towards the bottom of the boat and he finds a pocket of air. The boat settles on the bottom of the ocean. He's there for three days and three nights in the, in the dark. You can look this up. You can actually, I actually had a, a, a slide I was gonna show you a picture of him. Um, a picture of him in the boat. Let me tell you how that happened. Three days later, they've arranged for a, a Norwegian salvage company to come recover the bodies of the other sailors. And they are lowered down with their special diving gear. They got video cameras on their diving gear. And they're doing a recovery operation and they're being told by the boat, you know, to go down this chamber, go up this chamber, check here, check there. And so finally they make their way up into the, the, the pocket of air where Harrison has been for three days and he had nothing to drink but half of a bottle of Coke that had floated up. And uh, the interesting thing is he has his cell phone with him, but of course there's no reception down there. <laughs> it still somehow has survived. And that day before the boat capsized, his wife, who was a Christian, texted him a psalm that said, oh Lord, you are my preserver and my keeper. And so he spent three days in the dark praying. He hears fish and he thinks sharks bumping the boat as they're maybe devouring his shipmates that have died. And then after three days, he realized they're running out. He's got this pocket of air. It's getting stale. He's running out of air. And uh, all of a sudden, he doesn't know if he's hallucinating. The water begins to glow down below him. Um, and then he sees bubbles coming up. And then he sees the helmet of a diver coming up. He is scared to death, and he reaches down to hit the diver. He doesn't know what it is. The diver is looking for bodies in the meantime. <laughs> and it's already very spooky. If you're on a recovery operation down in the dark, you're in this foreign environment, and you've got your tether, and you're listening to the guys who are saying, all right, go left, look a little, and see, check this compartment, and you know, you're, you're taking your bodies out, and all of a sudden you, you get up into something, and a hand reaches down and grabs you. And you can hear the diver yelp, because they're recording the whole thing. They're recording the recovery operation. And he says, we have a survivor. And uh, he lifts his, his hood up, and the camera pictures Harrison. He looks like he's seen a ghost. He is there, and you can see his face. It's, you actually can see the recovery uh, video online. And they ended up saving him, but it, it, it was quite an ordeal because they had to take him through two days of like decompression. So they had to lower a decompression chamber and bring him out, help him get adjusted to the atmosphere on the top. But uh, he went back to shore, he became a cook, and he said he was never going to see again. <laughs> but do you think he believes the story of Jonah? Uh, yes. Yeah, the Lord can, the Lord can save. And the story of Jonah is really the story of Jesus. 
Um, Jesus was asleep in a boat in a storm. Jesus was awakened. Jesus was asked, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus talks about the three days and the three nights, and will we believe the message if not that generation would pass away? That's the sign of Jonah. And they, they, where Pilate said, I don't want to be responsible for innocent blood, you see all these echoes. When you read the stories in the Bible, I told you my emphasis is make sure and see the gospel in these stories. Um, always present it that way in the context of Christ. But uh, yeah, I believe the story of Jonah is true, and it is, uh, it's a lesson for us in how Jesus wants to save us. He went through those three days and three nights in the hands of the devil, in the heart of the earth, suffering. Imagine how Jonah suffered for you and me. And Jesus was resurrected. And don't miss, yes, Jesus came out of the tomb. The tomb isn't the heart of the earth. Jesus was raised supernaturally. Jonah supernaturally survived what would have killed anybody else. And it's just as much a miracle. If you don't believe in Jonah, then you don't believe in the resurrection because they're equal miracles. Amen? All right, let's have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these stories and your word and for the admonition of Jesus to take a good look at the story of Jonah and learn the lessons of salvation. Uh, help us to know, Lord, that um, if we would fully surrender to you, really fully surrender, look at what you did through a reluctant prophet. There's no limit to what you can do through us if willing to take the gospel to those around us. I pray that you will... Um, Help us be willing in every area of our lives to do your will. Pour out your spirit on this camp meeting. And I pray you bless each person, bless the other programs that are going on. And let there be a real revival, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. Help us to walk with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.